Hi, this is Graham from LSAT Hacks. And this is Steve from LSAT Blog. And this is the LSAT Pros Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about logic games. So we've got a bunch of student questions on some common topics. And the first one here is, uh, the question is, you mentioned that a good indicator of how to set up a game can come from the orientation question. That's referring to like the, the very first question where it's like, which of these could be a list of variables in the game. In your course, you also mentioned using the rules to decide the setup. If one variable set had more rules associated with it than the others, make that your base. Are there any other things to look for? How do I hone my setup abilities? What do you think, Steve? Yeah, so this was a question I got from a student. They were asking about how I decide what the setup should look like based on the variables and the rules. And sometimes, this is particularly with grouping matching games, I'll find that making one variable set the base meaning the variables that are listed horizontally in my diagram or vertically depending on the orientation can help me to organize the rules and make deductions accordingly. So it creates this kind of cascading or domino effect. And honestly, I would say that a lot of it comes from intu intuition. How do you typically handle this, Graham? Yeah, I'd say it's intuition. And, you know, this is a frustrating answer because, like, well, how do you get intuition? Uh, the way you get it is you do a bunch of games where you've seen how the variable sets are and then you think, like, did that work? Did that not work? Should I have used, like, I remember there was one game, like the car feature set where you've got cars and you've got features. And so you think, should I use cars as a base or features as a base? Well, you can try it and see, like, how did this one work? And then you can look at explanations to see how did they do it. I think on that one, cars is the best base, if I'm recalling correctly. But anyway, the point is you build your intuition by experience of them and thinking about it. Uh, as far as, like, you know, more rules associated with it than the other, uh, Maybe. I, I've never actually tried to formalize it. I just have, you sort of get a feel for it after seeing it. But I think like if one thing seems to be changing more than the other thing, it probably shouldn't be the base, but that's not really a super, you know, <laughs> you can't really use that as a guide. Yeah, it's, it's tough to articulate. I think part of it does come with practice. Part of it co will come over time, trying out both ways and seeing what works better as a drill or as an exercise. And it's funny, Grim, I actually rec re recognize that the game you're talking about. I think it's from the 30s, like exam 35 or so. And yeah, for that game, there were like seven cars as the variables and then three different features each car could have. And that's a great example. I actually wrote my own logic game that was in loosely inspired by that one about Hindu deities. And I list like seven different deities and then four different people who can go with those deities. And yeah, it's just something to play around with. I think over time, you'll come to get a better sense of it. But this is really something that I see as being most relevant for grouping matching games in particular. How do you think about that sort of categorization or that, that sort of game type as it applies to this? Well, I certainly think it's one people should know. And I think like it's sort of left off of the most mainstream categorizations as in if we talk about like linear or uh, grouping. People don't really have a name for this car features thing. What do you call it? Grouping matching? Yeah, I, I personally call it grouping matching. I think that Kaplan just calls it matching. Other people might call it distribution. Yeah. But I definitely think it's like a, a type of game to know. Um, I, I don't really have any other comments on that specifically. But are, they asked something here. Are there other things to look for in like honing a setup? Um, what do you What do you look for when you're honing setups? I think a lot of it depends on the nature of the rules, honestly. The, ru the rules and the initial paragraph dictate the types of tasks that you're being asked to perform. So in this game type we've been discussing, 
you have two, uh, two variable sets or more where there's no ordering component. And so when I see that sort of relationship, I know that this is how I have to handle it. I have to choose one variable set as the base and take the other one and assign it. So that this could also be called an assignment game. But then in contrast, you might have an ordering game where you have a clear linearity. And so I'm looking for that to help me decide what my setup will look like, or it might be a grouping in out, in out game with conditional statements and that will dictate it. So it's really, I think, the rules and their relationships that tell me what sort of setup to create. Yeah. One thing I look for is like, what's the most certain variable? So, you know, if there's a rule that says like P is in seven, then that's the first thing I draw. Even if it's rule three, I usually read over them all, all the rules to sort of get them in my head. And then I pick the one that's most certain and draw that. And I find if you put down the things that are most certain, then when you're left with just two or three rules, it's easier to spot deductions. Whereas if you're just looking at rule one and you've got a blank canvas and rule one is maybe like the least certain, you're just not going to come up with anything if you've got nothing in front of you. Yeah, agreed. I think you're looking for the most restricted or restrictive variable and go from there. Yeah. Yeah. And I also will, uh, if there's like, say a conditional rule, so a, a single conditional rule, this is pretty common. I will draw both the conditional rule happening and I'll draw it not happening. So what I mean is if something says like, you know, if T is in group one, S is in group three. Well, I'll draw one diagram with T in group one and S in group three. And I'll draw another diagram where T is not in group one. This isn't the contrapositive that sometimes confuses people. All I'm drawing is either T in group one or T not in group one because it's the conditional happening or the conditional not happening. The reason I do this is I find like often when you do this, it then chains into other deductions it's like sort of a hidden trail that the LSAC has left in the games and so I just tend to draw it out of habit not because of any like logical necessity but because I've noticed it tends to lead somewhere well I think that really is useful actually because and I, I think it almost is necessary in a certain regard because what you're doing is you're making sure that you're not missing any possibilities either t's in three or t's not in three those are the only two ways the game can play out but if you were to only draw if t is in three, you're seeing a particular set of consequences, but you're failing to go down the other path. So, Graham, I think it's actually really important that you mention that you're including both roads that one can go down. Oh, no, I agree. If you draw, you have to draw the other half. And that missing other half is the part that people find hard. But you could also just not draw it at all. Like, that would be, a, in theory, a valid way to approach the game. But I find that drawing it and drawing it not happening are actually more effective on average when making a setup and looking for deductions. Yeah, I think it's really nice to have them both fleshed out and then you can just run with it from there. Um, I think we covered this one pretty well. Let's let's go on yeah, to the next much. one. Oh, just just one, one oh, more yeah. quick thing. Uh, look for variables that are mentioned in multiple rules. That often can be something where there's a deduction as well if you're just short on things. Yeah, when you see the same variable in multiple, multiple rules, that is definitely an indication that it's going to be key in some way to making inferences. Yeah, but if you're not seeing anything, some games just don't have deductions. I mean, most have at least some, but some have just like, well, I didn't really get anything in that setup there. You know, like you, you draw them as best you can, but there's no like, no major thing up front and it'll become clearer when you go through the questions. Not all games, obviously you should be making them, but like basically don't stress out if you see nothing. It doesn't necessarily mean you're making a mistake. Yeah, especially with some of the newer, weird, or curveball games, there's there's less you can do up front and more you'll have to do over the course of the game. Yeah. All right, next question was, what's a good way to organize conditional rules in selection or matching games? When I diagram rules and their contrapositives and try to link them together, I often end up with so many diagrams 
it's hard to sort through to find what's important. So two different questions here, I think, because we have selection games and matching games, which I think are different. This person kind of lumped them together. We've talked about matching games a bit, so I think selection games might be actually be more relevant here anyway. When What's I organize a selection game, selection, and uh, I know this is a funny question for an LSAT tutor asked, but everybody has their own classifications, so I don't actually know what that is. I think they're referring to grouping or in-out games. Where oh, you're so selecting some or choosing some, not others. So this is like some are in, others are out. And so organizing conditional rules, I think, is really important. And one thing I like to do is make long conditional chains, basically linking together multiple conditional rules into a, a mega statement. So if we had one rule saying A requires B and another rule saying B requires C, you can link those together into a longer chain. A requires B requires C. And of course, they can make this harder by using negative variables and requiring you to take the contrapositive. So there's a bit of unraveling that you have to do, but you can end up with really nice long conditional chains that make all the deductions and inferences readily apparent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I like to do that. I think you do the same. I like to do that all at once. So you don't just take all the rules and dump them on your paper and then look for connections. You should just take a variable and look for the rules for the next, sorry, take a rule like A connects to C and then look through the rules for one that says A or C and connect that on to that because they all connect together. So you can just connect them all in a row as you go. Yeah, exactly. One, one thing I really stress to students is to link the conditionals together as you go rather than to draw all the conditionals, then their contrapositives, then link them. Some people are just doing it more mechanically one by one when rather you can do it as you're writing them down in the first place. I have some videos on this and some walkthroughs as well on my website, but basically there are probably at least seven or eight games that fit this mold perfectly and I, I can link to them in the show notes. But one classic example would, would of course be the famous Birds in the Forest game from Test 33 Game 2. Grim, I'm sure you use that one a lot as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great game to practice and uh, just see how you can one by one match all the rules together. And also a bit of imagery just occurred to me in terms of thinking about like how we're doing this matching versus how people are doing this when they put it all on their page. Basically, like imagine some sort of puzzle pieces or like basically things that like link together like dominoes, I guess. Um, and, and LSAC has just given you like an unsorted pile of dominoes that you've got to link together. Now, what people are doing if they're just redrawing the rules on their page is that they're carefully picking up each domino looking at it and then randomly throwing it onto a table and then you know they go through each that so they've taken a pile of unsorted dominoes thrown them somewhere else and now they've got a pile of unsorted dominoes and then they start looking at how to make connections which isn't efficient at all what you should be doing is like you pick up a domino you see one says six and one says three you put that on your table you look at your unsorted pile you look for one that says six or three and you stick it together that's a really great analogy, and I, I, I can imagine that very clearly because I'm, I'm thinking like you already have the domino in your hand. Instead of when you already have it in your hand and you're thinking about that rule, instead of just tossing it on the table only to have to pick it up again like one or two minutes later to reevaluate it, why not evaluate it in the moment you have it in your hand the first time around when you're first considering the rule and link it into its appropriate place? Yeah, I, because, and this sort of applies to all games too, though, like simply just redrawing the rules doesn't really do much because the rules are already on the page. 
what you want to do when you're doing any drawing is like redraw the rules in a more effective way that can be processed. And this applies especially in these games where like the default thing is just pick up dominoes and scatter them on the table is what people are doing. But on, on all games, you should be thinking about not just recopying, but like reordering to make them the most efficient. Yeah, definitely. One thing I would urge students to do is not to necessarily think of the original formulations of the rules and pri uh, privileging them over the contrapositives. The contrapositives are equally valid and have equal potential to be useful to you in making inferences or linking things together. And you can see this in many different iterations of this game over time, whether it's the Birds in the Forest game we referenced before, or it's Test 36 game one, the fruit stand, or Test 45 game three with the photographs, or Test 58 game two with the summer school courses. All of those are great examples to play around with. And I think one reason LSAC has been including this game again and again over time in slightly different forms is because students keep making the same mistakes over and over in terms of properly or improperly taking contrapositives and linking them together. And so these are fundamental logical principles that are worth getting down now. Mm. What about matching games, uh, organizing conditionals? And I think, like, I can't speak quite as clearly in this, but I think I know what they're talking about, where it's like, you've got a thing where it's like, I don't know, if this car has this feature, then it shares like two features at most with another car or something like that. Is that, that the kind of thing? Or do you think they're referring to something else? I guess that could be it. I mean, I think maybe they weren't that clear on how they were thinking about game types in general with this question, because I think conditional rules are definitely more of a force in selection in out games over matching games. Matching games might have a, a conditional rule or two, but it's not as fundamental to the operation of the game. But yeah, it could be something yeah. like that. It could be something that's a little bit vague. Yeah, I guess I guess they're not all conditional, but I, I just have like a quick point on matching games is that these often end up with just like a couple of possibilities. Like they're, they're very restricted. And I would do the same thing I recommend for games in general, but more focused, which is start with the easy certain stuff and then at each step, look for deductions and think like, okay, if this thing has one and this thing has two, how does this restrict this other thing? And go step by step through the rules and they get quite restricted. So you want to start from easy to hard on matching and see how that affects other things. And that could also impact how you create multiple main diagrams. Like you, you take the most limited factors or variables in the game and you could use those to create maybe two to four main diagrams and then go from there drawing further specifications for each template. As it comes right, up. You want to move on? Yeah, sure. You want to, you want to read the next okay. one? Yeah. So when setting up templates, I've been labeling spots with multiple variable possibilities with my choices like E-F, unders. Oh, no. Okay. I see what they're doing. Um, th this is like if there's like three spaces and they've drawn in space one, E-F, space two is nothing, space three is F-E. At least I think that's what they're doing. Sort of like the split thing where you've got E-F, F-E in two spots. Or they've drawn like A slash H slash K. So it's like a spot that could have three things, any of those things. Um, and they say, in your videos, this is you, right, by the way? Yeah, yeah, they asked me this. Yeah. Uh, in your videos, Steve, you tend to leave these spots blank. Why do you make that choice? Seems to work well. You can write in variables when you need to instead of possibly drawing new diagrams and there's less clutter. Just curious why you prefer one or the other. So I, this was a long question. I'm going to just condense it. So they're saying... When Steve has like sort of open-ended spots, he leaves them blank. Whereas this person's like, okay, 
it could be one of three variables. So I'm going to draw those three variables in the spot. And they're wondering why Steve does it his way because he thinks like, well, I've just got this one diagram and I don't have to draw more. So. Yeah, there's a couple things I could say on this. One of them is that I, I disagree with the premise of the question a little bit because I actually think I, I love to draw out those multiple possibilities and make them concrete. So in a lot of cases, I'll actually tend towards drawing the, the dual options. Like if a spot could have E or either E or F, I'll put E slash F. Or if it could have maybe three different variables out of the total pool of seven, I'll put the three variables with slashes like A slash H slash K. But I suppose given what this person's asking, maybe I don't always do that. And what I can speak to here is that any game's method, I think in, in practice, in timed conditions, or if you're just doing every game ever released in a row, you may not actually be consistent even yourself. Like I, I was doing explanations, I suppose, for a variety of games, and I didn't always do every single game the same way. And so I think my tendency is actually to draw out multiple options and make them concrete on the page. But perhaps in some cases, I didn't find it worthwhile. And maybe students will sometimes want to draw the multiple options and sometimes not. So I think a lot of times it'll vary based on the circumstances of, of the case as it plays out specifically. But I think that overall, I would just say I think, it, I think execution varies. Yeah, that's a really good point because like, and there, there can be underlying reasons where like one strategy would make sense in one situation, but not in another. As one ex example, if there's like a whole lot of not rules, I may actually not draw all the not rules uh, as in like, you know, like not F under a spot. Whereas if there's just a few, I tend to draw them. And I, I tend to avoid visual clutter uh, in my diagrams. So like if there's already a ton on the page, I probably wouldn't draw like A slash H slash K because it's just adding more clutter and I don't know what to do with this information. Whereas if some spot was like especially restricted, well, I, I actually don't, I still don't personally tend to draw like A slash H slash K, but I would probably draw like not the other variables underneath it. But either way, I would be marking that deduction somehow. And in some games, if uh, it's actually like a very restricted spot, I would actually draw it. So um, I think it, it just sort of depends on the situation. Um, where I would advise against this kind of thing is if someone's just sort of focusing on like general could be true stuff and like they're just sort of drawing stuff out to draw stuff out and not really thinking about the fundamental points of difficulty in the game. Um, but there's no like definite thing to do every time with this stuff. Yeah, I think you made a really good point that it comes down to what else is going on in the game. Like if the dual options with E and F are all that you know about in the game as a whole, then maybe it's really valuable to do that. But if you've already got a ton of other stuff going on, it may just end up cluttering your diagrams too much to be worthwhile. And it'd be more likely to put in the dual options, whereas I think the A slash H slash K thing is less likely to be useful in, in general. Yeah, it could just be too vague. But again, I think a lot of this will come down to personal preference as to how much you'd like to lay out on the page with your initial setup, let's say, versus drawing local diagrams over the course of the game. Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure what the second line, the next line is referring to. So do you know, do you have context for this question? I mean, the orientation questions? Yeah. I wasn't sure either, but I thought that maybe we could talk about orientation questions in general and just how to approach sure. them. So the question is applying at least one out rules to orientation games in case uh, it does trigger something. But yeah, orientation questions in general, I think are a good topic and maybe we'll come around to this. What I like about orientation questions is they provide a way to double check your work. Um, and I don't use 
my own drawn diagram for this. I instead just use the rules. Um, and I'll usually start with like the easiest rule to scan for. So, you know, if one says like P is in two, then I'll just, I'll scan for P is in two, even if it's not the first rule, because it's the easiest one to find. Because the way you do orientation questions is the first time you go through, you're scanning five answers and you eliminate one. Then you only have four to scan, then you have three to scan. So you want to do the fastest one on the one where you have to scan five choices. And then I do that. And then I go back through. And so what this is doing, like in case you got a rule backwards, you're going to fail the orientation question. And then that'll tell you to revisit your diagram. Um, but for most, it's just a process of like read the rule, eliminate, read, eliminate, and so on. Yeah, so I like what you're saying. You're, t you're taking one rule and applying it to all five choices, checking for violations, right? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I tell students as well. And that's contrary to what I think a lot of students have as their natural instinct, which is to take choice A and scan all the rules to see whether any of them violate choice A and then go through go to choice B and do the same thing. This is much slower. I, I believe that it's much easier when you're already holding a rule in your head to check through all five choices to see which ones, if any, it violates. Definitely, because you're just doing one thing and checking five versus like trying to hold, I don't know, five things in your head as you check one. And then you're doing too much checking too because you gotta check each answer. Whereas like on the first pass of a single rule, you have that answer eliminated permanently. Yeah. Sometimes on a few newer games, you'll actually be down to two. Like just scanning through the rules doesn't eliminate them all. Then you need to like think about your diagram or maybe uh, draw something that's hidden. For example, if it's like, you know, who could be in, then you would also draw beside the remaining answers like who is out and that might show a violation. Yeah, and you can go back to the go back to the paragraph. Yeah. Yeah, go back to the paragraph and count or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Now to bring to this question applying at least one out rules. I suppose there could be a rule like at least one of A or B must always be out, meaning you could not have both A and B in. So I would reframe it in the positive to see, okay, well, at least one of A and B always out means you cannot have both A and B in. So I'd scan through all five choices looking to see if any of them contain both A and B. And if any of them did, then we could eliminate that choice. And then by the way, just to speak to orientation questions, of course, they, the correct answer to the orientation question provides you with an example of a valid scenario that could potentially help you eliminate choices for a future question. So I would yeah. definitely want you to save that scenario and refer back to it when possible, when appropriate. Exactly. And one tip on that also is the variables are interchangeable. For example, in the previous thing where someone said, you know, if E and F can be switched back and forth, well, then if you've got those in your orientation scenario that you know is valid, it means switching them is also valid. So thinking about who is interchangeable, say you had a future question that asked, you know, like, where can F go? Well, this orientation one actually is two examples in that case rather than just one. And this applies like pretty widely if you think like what's flexible in this thing. That's really good. So if we had an orientation scenario, correct answer where E was on three and F was on six, you could also draw the opposite F on three and E on six. And then that you'd really have two scenarios to help potentially help you for future questions. And so coming back to the, the digital LSAT, the idea of having everything on scrap paper, I'd want students to definitely keep all their valid scenarios cleanly organized to be able to refer back to for future questions. Oh, true. I would probably draw the orientation scenario on my scrap paper exactly. uh, just to keep it because it's, it's there for free. So why not copy it to have it close to the work you're doing? Yeah, yeah definitely. You don't want to have to go back to that question on the tablet. 
All right, I'll take a look at the next what question here we got here. How do you know when it is better to continue making deductions and working out the different possible combinations and when to move on to the questions without working out all the hypotheticals? Okay, so this one, uh, I think we've probably talked about this before, but basically I would focus on what must be true. When you know you find out that like something always has to be one way, keep going with the deductions. Or if you're splitting into like two big scenarios. Whereas if you're just thinking like, oh, well, this could be like four ways past this point, then like it, then you're just working out hypotheticals and could be true. And I wouldn't do that. So, and you know, their, their question actually has this phrasing. When should you work out the hypotheticals? Like if it's just hypothetical and it's not like, well, it must be true, then you shouldn't. Yeah. I think, I think that it ultimately it's, it's hard to know exactly when to move on to the questions in, in most games, I think you're not going to be able to draw out every single possibility up front. But if you can at least draw the, the major roads the game can go down and you lay them out, maybe there's three major possibilities and each of those could break into three to five additional scenarios or even more. You're not going to draw 15, 15 to 20 scenarios. But if you at least have an idea of where to go to take those next steps, if and when you need to, then you've got enough to go on to the questions. But I think, honestly, typically... After three minutes at most, one you other tip: have if you're getting good at making deductions, deductions, if you've been then as long as it's easy is when you should stay in the setup. And when it starts to feel hard, it probably means you're out of deductions. You do have to adjust for this. That you know, if you're not that good at making deductions, then it's going to feel hard, even at a point where you should still be making some more of them. But as you get more comfortable with it, you can use like the own like mental easiness as a gauge. Where like, because when you're in a flow in a game and you're going straight through it, it's actually pretty easy. Um, so, but part of the trick of games is that they can keep you spinning your wheels on stuff that you shouldn't be doing. And that's when things feel especially hard when you're off the track. Exactly. Yeah. So when you start slowing down or when you're drawing things haphazardly, that's a sign that you've, that you've gone too far and you're throwing yeah. you know you're throwing good time after bad so to speak and you need to just cut and your one other thing i do on. sometimes when i'm not sure local is like you know once i hit that part where it feels hard i'll just move on to the questions and if the orientation question feels easy good and if the first question feels easy good even if the first question feels hard i don't worry but if the first two questions feel hard then like okay i probably missed something in the in the setup and sorry and by first two questions i don't mean the orientation i mean like the ones after that um, but if those first two non-orientation questions feel hard, then I'm like, all right, I probably missed something. And I'll go back and I'll spend some more time. And this isn't really a big deal. Like, in other words, rather than just spending 45 more seconds wondering about the setup, I'll just move on. And then three quarters of the time, I've got everything and it's fine. And then the other quarter of the time, I go back. And on average, just saves me a bunch of time. And it's not really a disaster to go back. And at one time when I, like, you know, it's all still fresh in your head, you're doing the game. So it's no problem to go back after you've seen a bit of questions and think about it again. Yeah, totally. You can definitely skip around within a game. In fact, I even encourage students to save a, the global must be true or cannot be true questions for last in a lot of cases because your hypotheticals that you draw for local yeah, questions can actually be clear, guide I don't, you. I don't actually, so I'm not talking about you order here, but rather using the questions as like a gauge of how well did I do on the setup. So, you know, if one question feels hard, then yeah, I'll skip it and do it later potentially. And that's like out of order. But if two questions feel hard, like I was doing them in order, but I'm just like, oh crap, like I, I didn't properly do the setup and i need to go back now and then redo the questions in order but the the 
encounters with the questions is telling me I did a bad job. I need to figure out what deduction I missed. Yeah, and that you can use the material. That's a good point. Yeah, so out, if you're having trouble, did I get everything or did I? Because there's a lot of uncertainty in a new game. Like you could execute a new game perfectly, but still have a feeling of like angst of like I must have missed something. But if you go through the questions and they're easy, then like you didn't miss anything. And it's the questions that actually tell you if you got the important stuff or not, because if you got the important stuff, they'll be easy. And if you didn't, then they'll be hard. And you can use that as a guide to like see, oh, should I go back and still think about this setup more? You want to read the next one? Yeah. So what is the best course of action in a situation where you're unsure how to diagram the rules and thus make deductions? Other than despair. All right. I guess I'll, I'll think about this one. So if, if you're not sure how to make the diagram the rules... That's, that's a tough situation. This I could imagine this coming up in maybe the weird curveball games where the rules are not simple and clear. They're not conditional statements necessarily. Maybe they're more conceptual or relating to pattern games. I wish I had an example to pull up in front of me. But if there's a game, let's say, with only two rules and they're general in nature, I think you have to think about absorbing those rules and conceptualizing them for yourself to, to make sure you have a really solid solid understanding of them. I'm think one example that comes to mind is the the circuit load game from I believe test 47. The the game has a rule saying that the circuit load of the panel is equal to the number of circuits that are on. And so it's a, it's a bit of a tough concept. It basically means that if there's obviously cover your ears if you haven't done this game yet and you want to do it timed but test 47 if there were if the circuit load was three that means there are three circuits that are on circuit load circuit number three has to be one of those three and this is a tough idea it takes a while to think about it but i think it's worth just taking a moment to slow down and trying to thoroughly understand it because of course your your performance on the game is dependent upon that so yeah i think there's a couple of aspects to this and that understanding is the key um but you know if you're advanced at logic games this question is different than if you're not advanced because when you're first starting games or when they're your hard section there's going to be a lot of situations where you don't know how to diagram the rules but they're actually standard rules and so the solution is like well there's no right answer in the moment now what you need to do is after the game look up explanations and see like how did that person diagram them and then like redo the game and practice and so on so that you know how to draw these standard situations because then you can get to a point where you pretty much know how to diagram everything except the curveball games that Steve talked about and then you get at the point where well if you don't know how to diagram it the problem's actually probably that you don't understand it because usually if you understand something you can put it into another form and so and you know it applies even when you don't when you're missing more basic stuff, you can still just read over things and think like, what does this mean? What, am, how should I understand this? But uh, when you're on the unusual games, just spend more time on the setup, spend more time thinking about how it works. Like I remember a, one of the zones games, there's actually two zones games, but there's one that's like particularly hard. I think it's test. No, it's not 68, but it's somewhere in the sixties, I think. Um, or again, like cover your ears if you don't want to hear about the zones game, but it's like, you know, you had zone one, two, and three, and you had either like factories or, or industry or home or retail in them. And so basically you end up with a diagram where you've just got like groups one, two, and three, and you've got like R's and H's and I's in it. But most people reading this just like the first time, they have no idea how to draw this at all. And they just panic and draw something weird. But when you're stuck like that, 
you just want to read it again and think about what it says and then you want to look at the first question see how that's done and look at some of the other questions and see like you know uh they'll say like which of the following could we have in zone one and it'll just like r h i or something and you're like well that's a clue that that's what zone one should look like it's just group one and it has these things r h and i in it um so you can look around and see what the questions are doing with stuff and that gives you some context that's actually part of why when i'm not sure if i made all the deductions i'll look at the questions because after you've thought about something a bit looking at the questions gives you an idea of like how in general they're actually using these things and can give you some practical knowledge that's, that's a great idea looking at the questions that reminds me of another thing i tell students which is to look at the orientation question the orientation question can actually give you an idea of what the diagram diagram could look like or at least lsac's idea of what the diagram looks like and i think the zones game is a great example of that they give you very clearly zones one two and three and then what's going within each so i think that's that's a good starting point and then back to what you raised earlier if someone is kind of new to games and doesn't maybe know, know all the basics yet then explanations are definitely a great resource just to get an idea of how other people go about this because you don't need to reinvent the wheel on logic games there's many smart people out there who've developed a wide variety of diagramming techniques and so you can check out the explanations and choose which you like best yeah and i would actually also add just like doing the orientation question if you're really stuck can also be a good idea because then like you're losing nothing because you gotta answer that question at some point anyway but it's going to give you a little bit more practical experience and may help you go back to the diagramming yeah i kind of think of it like a warm-up yeah all right i'll take a look at the next one here um possibly for the lsat in general but when do you find what you believe is the correct answer choice in a b and c do you continue to d and e to make sure it's correct or move on to save time alternatively if there's no good answer until choice e do you choose e and move on for games i for games yeah for games i think it's it's okay to go through all five i think it's fast enough that there's not really a downside games are mathematical so if you predict the answer and you see it in the choices i tell students it's okay to pick that and move on but i can definitely see the arguments for both ways of handling that yeah i personally tend to go the other way um because i think if you've understood something it should only take like half a second to evaluate an answer like if you predict an answer and think it's going to be this all you're doing is making sure that you don't see something else that's you know if you feel b is obviously true you just want to make sure that c d and e don't also feel obviously true because even i make mistakes on games and sometimes i end up with two things i'm like well obviously both of these are true but that means i'm wrong somewhere um and it's just like an error check mechanism for me uh but obviously you know time constraints are time constraints and if you're running short in a section you do have to make choices and yeah on average if you pick b and you're sure it's b you're usually going to get it but you will also sometimes miss a mistake and if you catch that mistake you will go faster on the rest of the game as well so I guess actually, interestingly, on earlier questions, it might make more sense to look at all of them. On the final two questions, it might be fine to just like pick the one that's obvious and move on because if you've done everything well up till question like five on the game, then you probably didn't make any major errors and you're less likely to be have an on-exam mistake. That's a great point. Yeah, in the earlier questions, the stakes are higher because the errors can cascade. Yeah, so I think that there's, you know, checking should be fast, and so there's not much of a reason not to do it. But if you consistently rock at games and you're, and you're super confident, then on the one hand, you may not need to check, but also you may have the time to, so there may not be a downside. 
Yeah, I also sort of suspect that sometimes when people are saying, like, you know, do I have time to look at the answers? They're like, they're really focusing and they're really trying to prove and disprove the answers. But that's not what I'm doing. Like, I'm just, I'm really just reading, scanning, and, like, seeing if it does anything in my head. Now, granted that, you know, part of that is just, like, higher level ability, and um, if you're getting 15 on games, then it's not reasonable to expect that you can just glance at answers and do whatever we're doing, because, like, you don't have that expertise yet. Um, but I would say, like, when I say look at all the answers, like, err on the side of just, like, you know, the quickest glance you can make it and still process anything out of the answer. That's the kind of look at them that I'm talking about. It's not the same as, like, really trying to solve things if you're trying to explain it to someone else, for example. Yeah, there's a difference there. It's more just a quick check in your own head, right? All right. Next question is... Oh, and actually, the, their second question, if there's no good answer until choice E, do you choose E and move on? Uh, I wouldn't say I'd do this. Do you? No, I, w- I would evaluate E. I wouldn't just assume yeah. that E is correct. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like... There may be a bigger know, problem you, there that you just don't know what's going on. Exactly. Because, like, if you don't have any prediction and none of the first four seem good, you... Yeah, you probably just missed something. Um... Okay, next question is, how do you make sure your diagrams contain only logically sound inferences from the rules, but are also thorough? Mm. I don't really see those being at odds. I think that a diagram doesn't need to be overly detailed. I don't, I don't necessarily look to make, to make my diagrams thorough. That's not a goal for my diagrams. My diagrams, the goal is to map out the rules and any inferences that logically follow but nothing beyond that. I wouldn't say that a more thorough diagram is a better diagram. I think that a more thorough diagram can sometimes be too much and go beyond what you need for your initial setup. And so I just look to make the inferences that make sense to me that logically follow from connecting rules and just leave it at that and move on. Yeah, on most newer games, I I might have like one or two inferences and then the rest of the work that I do is just arranging stuff in a way that makes sense um, rather than just having the rules um, drawn as they were stated. I might, you know, put the arrangement in a diagram that, that helps me, but for additional inferences, it's usually just one or two. So, yeah, thorough is not how I would describe my diagrams. Yeah, I think especially for the newer games, it's more about taking the general, more abstract rules, which I kind of think of as being analogous to principles and holding them in my in my mind and then looking to apply them over the course of the game drawing new diagrams when necessary or taking the local limitations and combining them but i think that the thorough diagrams from the older games aren't coming up as often in newer games so like the tests from like the 30s the games in the 30s which are great games they're hard they're thorough they're detailed but you don't see a lot of games like those anymore Okay, next question. How do you keep yourself from making small mistakes in logic games? So, for me, we just talked about one of them, which is I will actually look at all the answers um, because I, I catch a lot of errors this way. The second thing I can think of is after I've drawn everything, I'll read over the rules once more to just check, like, you know, I'll read the rule and check, like, is that what I drew? Is that what I drew? Just to make sure I didn't make anything backwards. And I guess also when I read over the rules to solve the... Uh, was it the, the first question uh, utility question what do we call that i don't know orientation question um that's also an error check for me yeah the orientation is a, is a great checking point of course if you can't solve that one something has gone terribly wrong but i think overall the biggest way is to just slow down on your initial read of the rules 
to avoid any careless errors. There have been many nasty little tricks the test makers have used over the years to catch people who are rushing. I'm thinking of the famous CDs game from Test 31 Game 2 that's also featured in Legally Blonde, where it has for the first rule saying, used pop is in, semicolon, new opera is out. And then all the other rules are conditional, so the careless, fast-moving test taker is prone to read that first line as a conditional when it's actually two separate independent clauses. And if you're rushing, I, I've seen many, many students make the same mistake over and over. It's like watch, watching a train wreck because it's so predictable, but it's also very easily avoidable if you just slow down. And if you find yourself in the position of constantly making careless mistakes, then you can slow down or double check or both. But your initial diagramming of the rules is the foundation of everything that follows. So it really is worth slowing down there. And if you diagram the rules correctly, you're well on your way to avoiding careless mistakes going forward. That's really the major area where there's a risk. Yeah, I can't agree with that enough. I think, I don't know, 70% of like logic games errors are just someone screwed up a rule initially or forgot about it or something. And then that causes all the problems in the game. Um, the other thing you can do that also is slowing down is when you're doing any deductions, either in the setup or on questions, when you think of something, write it, write it down. Or sorry, when, when you make a deduction, when you think of a deduction, write it down. Then you can move on to the next deduction. This is kind of like, if you can imagine like rock climbing, what a lot of people do is they just, you know, climb up the wall as fast as they can. And then when they, uh, hit a struggle point they just fall all the way to the ground when what you should do is what i'm sure you've seen people do in rock climbing you put in those little pegs or whatever so that if you fall you are then held to the point of the peg and you can't get that far down that that's that's the equivalent of writing a deduction that you still have it because what happens with your short-term working memory is you just don't have that much stuff so if you're rushing ahead you've forgotten the earlier foothold that like got you to where you are. And when you hit a stumble, like everything comes crashing down. It's kind of funny, Grim. You're reminding me of like saving your spot in a video game before you face a particularly difficult point so that if you screw up, you can just go back to the last spot you saved. Yeah. That's a really good analogy too. That's just write it down so that you've still got it because your short-term working memory sucks. My short-term working memory sucks. We're, we're asked to do something like computers and we don't we have a capacity for like five things so if you write it down you can keep it and if you don't well you've only got five things and logic games have more than five things so you'll lose it yeah, so what i'm taking away here is like show your work show your deductions so that they're they're saved and readily available when you're as you're moving through the game yeah because how this plays out in the game is like you can just spend like two or three minutes circling back and forth on one point which is actually it's gone beyond small mistake at that point, but it's certainly a mistake. Um, and it feels like a stupid thing once you're, once you see what you were missing, but it could have been avoided by showing your work. Yeah, definitely. And I'm thinking when it comes to like writing things down, showing your work, I'm, I'm just reminded of another careless mistake that students make that's so easily avoidable and so frustrating. And it's when students write the letters and the letters, one letter looks like another, like a, a lowercase I could look like a lowercase J or something of that nature. And so I'm thinking about what I encourage students to do, which is just to write in all caps for variables. I think all caps is much cleaner and neater and less confused 
than if you do lowercase where letters can look like each other. Yeah, I do all caps with the exception of like, I don't know if there's like five days of the week and then there's like six variables. All there are the variables in caps and then like Monday, Wednesday, Friday um, in lowercase just to distinguish the types. But otherwise, yeah, I do all caps for my stuff. Yeah, no, that's good. I think that just a lot of students, the, the work gets messy and then one thing gets confused for another and that's such a shame because it's so easily avoided. Yeah, this does bring to mind like one other thing about avoiding mistakes to do with mess is that I tell people you should be able to recognize and understand your diagrams like two or three weeks later. If you look at your old diagrams and you don't understand what you were doing, well, you probably were confusing yourself at the time that you did it too. Like it's it's the equivalent of rushing ahead and like it's the sort of thing where, you know, in, when you're in the middle of something, you can sort of understand what you're doing and it, it's all right. But if you hit any troubles, having like a clear thing that's understandable later helps you understand it now too and so you should focus on a diagramming format that makes sense to you later that'll improve your performance in the moment no that's, that's a great point and i think that it requires having a somewhat consistent diagramming strategy so if you want to if you have a rule that says that a is immediately before b you should have a consistent way to diagram that sort of rule when one thing is immediately before or immediately after another i mean for me i'll just draw it a, B with a box around it, and that's fine. You may you may do it differently, but it doesn't matter how you do it as long as you're consistent in how you do it every single time so that if you do a particular game today and then a month from now, your diagramming of the rules should look roughly the same and your diagramming language should be consistent across time. And you can improve along as you go forward with your studying, that's fine, but just be conscious of what you're doing and why. Yeah, this consistent method, which I do too, a avoids errors and b frees up mental space to work on the harder things if you're not thinking about the basic building blocks of like what does a before b look like you can think about the other stuff because the rest is automatic yeah very true very true and i think it's it comes back to this idea that you don't want to constantly reinvent the wheel every time you do a new game you can look at when you're learning the basics you can look at explanations and guides but then once you've got the foundation down then you want to at least make it your own in some way where maybe you pull different methods from different sources and that's fine but you pull it all together in terms of what works best for you and then just apply that consistently as you go into more and more games did we already answer the next question here how do you bet know the best format to diagram from the rules especially when there are multiple variables i'm sure we've discussed a lot around it i want to i think there is something we can draw out of this which i think they're really just asking how do you know the best way to diagram the rules maybe that's what they're asking i think the only answer for me here is like experience and reference to what others have done in that you know when you're starting there is no way to know the best way because you don't have access to it yourself and like everybody when they start this isn't like a natural thing because logic games diagrams are their own stuff so you have to look at what other people have done take that and make it your own um and have then this repertoire so that when you see most games this question doesn't even make sense because if you know the most common ways to draw the most common games then you already know how to draw and um there is no like question about the best format it's when you don't have enough experience with all the different game types and have seen what people do and haven't like practiced drawing them yourself that's when you don't know what to do yeah i would agree with that i think there's there's not necessarily one best way for everybody but there are plenty of different methods out there you can look at. There's 
more coming out all the time. And of course, the LSAT is constantly evolving as well. And so I'd say the best way is probably not going to be the way that you make up having no experience with the LSAT. Because again, it's frustrating to reinvent the wheel, especially if symbolic logic is not your forte, especially if you're a pre-law person like, like I was. But looking at the methods and seeing what works best for you over time, what is what is concise, what is clear, what makes sense for you, and what helps you as you're going through the games. And then just keep chewing on that and mulling it over as you do more and more games. But I think after you've done at least 50 to 100 games, you'll have a better sense of, work, of what works well for you. And that's not too many games to do, by the way. That's just a drop in the bucket, really. Yeah, because that's only... Uh, like 12 to 25 exams or 25 yeah. sections. Yeah. Yeah. Which isn't that many. Um, one thing I'll add too is that uh, there is a process of constant refinement. So on the one hand, like, you know, you, you are exposed to like the broad base of things and that's, how you know, like roughly what to draw, but I'm still finding like ways to like marginally improve the efficiency of my thing. So like best is a process rather than a result. Um, you're you're aiming to improve upon what you found and upon what you do, and that'll make you like slightly slightly better over time at even known things. But like the main knowledge of how to draw games that aren't these new unusual ones should come from past expertise. And I generally like, I mean, you know, every new game is new. So even in like say a linear game, there will be some innovation in what I'm drawing. But I'm innovating like within a set of of norms, such that I know like the broad base of how to draw stuff, and then I'll just like make little tweaks to it based on the specifics of the game. Yeah, I would say I do the same. I think that overall my fundamentals are pretty much fixed. But as the exam evolves and as my experience continues to grow, I'm still making refinements and iterations along the way, especially as the LSAT continues to change. Yeah, you'll find what works for you. You'll develop your own rhythm and then just keep going with it. So one way you can work on these refinements is, you know, at the start, you should look at explanations, see what other people have done, repeat stuff and so on. But then once you broadly know what to do, I think you should move away from explanations and then repeat the same game, but just do it yourself and try and think like, how could I do that better? How could I do that better? Is there a better way to draw this? Is there an efficiency gain? Do it a few times until you know the game in and out. Then check the explanation and see if they did anything different. But that's the other way you can learn like the best format is once you know the basics, stop getting it like handed to you and just work on the, the skill yourself so that you actually train the skill of drawing new stuff on your own. Yeah, no, I, th- I think redoing games across time is a really valuable way as well just to see what has worked well, what hasn't worked as well. There are some games where I have multiple diagramming methods for solving it. That I've come up that I've come up with at different points in time, and occasionally I'll send a student both versions of my diagrams to show them the various different ways, and then I'll say, "This is the more complex way that's more fleshed out, but could get messy. This is the simpler way that's cleaner, but maybe not as detailed." And then the student can choose, and you'll see that there's not necessarily a right or a wrong. It's about your preference. Yeah, I think that's everything. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that does it. Topic. All right. So thank you all for listening to LSAT Pros. And as far as uh, finding us, my site is lsathacks.com. And you can also, the best way to reach me would be on Instagram. And I'm Graham underscore Blake. That's G-R-A-E-M-E underscore Blake on Instagram. What about you, Steve? And I'm Steve at the LSAT blog. And the best way to get in touch with me is through YouTube, youtube.com slash LSAT blog.
you can find me there.